Today's guest on the Savage Leader podcast is Amir Sirhangi. Amir is a serial entrepreneur and advisor and is currently the CEO of Supermojo, a tech company focused on making NFTs more accessible. Amir sold his last company to Google in 2015. Amir, thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So take me back. I know you've been in the startup game for a long time. You've acted as an advisor and uh, had some successful exits. And just what was the original spark that got you into entrepreneurship? I guess just since when I was a kid, uh, I've always uh, did the paper run and that got me a dollar a day and that got me excited about having my own business. And I've always just kind of had it in me that, you know, I wanted to start a company. But the first thing I did was actually do consulting, worked at Deloitte Consulting. And that was really great because got a chance to really see a lot of different businesses from a outside perspective, see how what they're doing correctly and what they're not doing correctly. And then after that, just jumped into it right kind of during the height of the internet bubble, did my first startup, learned a ton in that experience. We luckily exited the business because I think we could have dragged that on for much longer without much uh, result of it. But that that was a great learning. And one of the key things I learned there was like, we just didn't understand our customer that that well. We built a great product, we raised money, but at the end, we realized the customer wasn't willing, willing to pay for the product. So, But it, every time I've done a startup, it's kind of taught me a lot, but at the same time, kept me hungry for the next one. So that's kind of been the history of my career. Yeah. Tell me about just the, you know, the first, I guess, successful startup you had, Jive Mobile, and just like, what was the genesis of that and how that took some of the learnings that you referenced from your first startup in terms of identifying what the customer wants, what they'll pay for and so forth. So, you know, we, I, I was in Japan, I was working for a company called Vodafone. Think of them as the AT&T mobile for the world. Um, they have different locations and Japan, I, I lived in Japan for six years working for them, running their products and services group. We ended up selling that business to SoftBank, which a lot of you now know who SoftBank is. And in that process, I had this, this idea that, you know, a lot of users in Japan basically had multiple phone numbers and multiple identities. So we started a company that was very focused on solving the problem of a, having a business phone and a consumer phone. And that basically evolved to being, you know, we had many different iterations and it evolved into being something completely different. But really the start was the customers had this need to solve, which was, I have two different phones that I need to carry. How can I simplify that and have a single experience? And that's how Jibe initially started. And then we really evolved into going into messaging and and where we ended up and ended up selling a company to Google eight years later and probably four or five pivots in that process. And really all along, you know, my number one focus was, are we building to solve a pain point? And then the next question is, if we're solving a pain point, is that pain point big enough to where someone will pay for it and actually want to continue paying for it. And, and that's really how, and the reasons we made those pivots along the way was, you know, making sure we're, we are solving a big enough pain point. And then we started actually generating revenues and it was essentially a SaaS business working with mobile carriers. And what it ended up being, the result was basically iMessage for Android. So if, if you use an Android phone, you're using our messaging product that we ended up uh, selling to Google and 
you know, the rest is history. I love it. Sounds so easy. Yeah. You have four or five pivots, just the way you explain it, obviously at a, at a very high level. And I know just from, from knowing and hearing part of the story and you being gracious enough to share it in my first book, but just take me through some of those, the ups and downs. I mean, I think people on the outside think of entrepreneurship. They see these fantastic exits. They don't see the, I remember you talking about just doing a, a shower in the train stations as you're parading across Europe, trying to find either customers or investors. But Take me through some of those highs and lows because think about pivot. Like, oh, it sounds easy, but it's like, well, unless you're in that space, you don't even know what that really means. Yeah. I mean, look, it is difficult. First off, the way we started the business was, you know, our first customer was actually SoftBank for that initial product that I mentioned. So the good news was we had an initial buyer for the product. They were willing to pay us ahead of time to build it because it was innovative. But then when that money dried up and we realized like there wasn't many other customers, we had to evolve. And as we evolved, we had to raise money. And in the middle of all this, we also hit the financial crisis, like the 2008 meltdown happened in the middle of our fundraise. We had a term sheet for like $10 million that we were signing the following day, uh, the following week. And then on the Monday, like the whole markets melted down. So that went away. And all of a sudden, we're sitting there with no cash in the bank, having to pay a payroll of, I don't know, 20 people. So we had many of those instances throughout the eight years, even all the way to the end. And I think that's what a lot of people don't realize is that there are a lot of tough times, especially as a first-time entrepreneur. You have to prove yourself. People are not going to be lining up out the door to hand you checks. So you got to really prove every step of the way and every time you get a no, it's actually like if you have to have the attitude of I'm going to prove these people wrong. And that's kind of how I I saw it is every time I got a no, and probably 200 VCs said no to me in that whole process. And we ended up raising money from strategics. And when we talk about pivots, really what that means is like you're going down a direction. A lot of people are excited about it, but you as the CEO or the founding team realize even though it's exciting, no one's really coming out to write those checks for you. And, and a lot of times people don't want to actually tell you the truth or they don't. And users a lot of times don't even know what they want because a lot of times if you do user research, you know, users will say, oh, yeah, I love it. But then when it comes down to actually using it and paying for it, it's a whole different ballgame. Those are a lot of the signals that will start you start understanding and you start realizing, OK, Maybe this is not exactly the right product. What do we need to do to get that user to actually want to pay for it and want to use it? And typically, those are when those pivots happen. Now, the hard thing about pivots is, A, you've got to be sure that this next pivot is going to solve some of these issues because you're convincing your whole team, your engineering team, who've spent the last X number of months, years working on this product to now shift their focus on something new. You know, in that journey, you could lose people because they'll be like, you know what? I just don't believe in this new direction we're headed. So being convincing and having conviction yourself is the most important thing is you have to have conviction. You have to really understand it. And then you have to got to explain to your team and make sure they understand the direction you're headed and make them believers. And that doesn't happen overnight. Like typically what I would do is I would seed them with the idea and then keep chipping away at it until finally they're the ones telling me this is what we should do. And then we would make that move. And that was 
I think probably the most important skill I learned uh, when I was at Jibe and, and leading that team. So take me through the last pivot. So I think the the last one is I think fascinating because you know I characterize it as like pivoting into Goliath. I mean, you made a, a pretty gutsy move, and this is years into the game where your team has put hours and hours and hours, you know, probably years of effort into the product into the company. And you just, you fully went for it, which I think is pretty interesting. I'd love just to hear, just walk me through that pivot and just what it took to get the chipping people away, to get them aligned, whether it's your investors, but also your team behind that. Yeah. So the moment you're talking about, I think is when we, we were really focused on just building a client, this client would basically be a messaging client that would make it really easy for users to send essentially instant messages between users So very similar, again, to iMessage. But think of it as just kind of the user experience is what we were focused on. And we were relying on very large companies like Ericsson and Alcatel Lucent. These are like, at that time, were multi-billion dollar companies that were providing the back-end platform that was actually doing all the the messaging and routing. What we realized was that that whole thing was completely broken. And the only way we could compete with iMessage or with WhatsApp and these messaging apps that were out there was to own the whole experience. That was my, at that point, conviction that like if we didn't own the whole thing, it would be very difficult for us to deliver a good experience to the, to the user. But the challenge was that, you know, we're competing with multi-billion dollar businesses who have a lot of resources and also were almost like blocking us from getting into the space because we would basically eliminate their ability to sell very, very large size ticket items to mobile carriers like AT&T, Sprint, and so on. And the team itself like had a very, you know, kind of a fear that why would we want to compete in that space? Like there's already players there and there's a lot to build and we would need to be able to essentially have the ability to integrate in a very kind of technical way with these mobile carriers. And those are, years of experience and years of relationships that are already in place. So, but I was convinced that we're not, we were not going to be a very valuable company if we didn't own the whole thing. It took a lot of convincing of the team to go that direction. I think one of the things that helped was they saw how many, how much missteps there were with those larger companies and how difficult it was for us to work with them. And I think that also created a little bit of kind of energy and almost resentment towards them that helped us kind of convince the team that we got to go build this out. That was probably the best decision we ever made, but we made it as a team. I mean, even though, you know, I may have instigated it, you know, at the end of the day, it was a team effort and it was something that the team, everybody got behind. And then once we got, we kind of had the first version of the product, it was just so obvious at that point that we made the right decision. So what I really want to ask you about here is, is you had a, a really successful exit. Many successful tech entrepreneurs go on and start to, you know, VC funds, et cetera, become advisors, which you did. You know, I did see you jump back into the game working for a company, but starting another company, like what was the motivation just to, to get back in the game, so to speak? Yeah, I guess, you know, I think, uh, you know, uh, I'm a parent now, a couple of kids and you, uh, and so you are, you are too, Darren, I know. And, you know, with kids, like, for example, you, you know, as they're growing up, you remember all the good stuff, right? You don't remember all the times you got mad at them or things like that. It's the same thing with startups. I feel like it's like, 
my memory has blocked all the tough times. And all I can remember is all the good times. And also just, you know, with Jive, we had an amazing run, but at the same time, like we ended, uh, you know, we, we got acquired by Google. And once we got acquired, like we had pretty much everybody that started Jive with us all together, which was a really nice thing. Like we had very little turnover and attrition. And once everybody went into Google too, I, I think it was just a really good experience because Google is a great place, especially for an acquired team. Not necessarily an acquired founder, but definitely an acquired team. And so I think that was part of it, just that the team we built, the the feeling that we had in working together was really special. And small teams just can produce so much, you know, and, and they can be so nimble and innovative. And I think I really missed that. Kind of I love that zero to one. And inevitably, anytime a team gets bigger, you know, once you start getting into the hundreds, it's just you become a bigger ship and it's harder to move. And there's a lot of management that comes with it and a lot of other headaches that that you get. So I, I just enjoy that smaller team and that struggle to find market fit and product fit for me is really rewarding. Uh, it's tough. And I, and, I, and I know you and I were talking about it just before we started this is that as you're kind of going through that struggle, you start remembering how difficult it was the first time or the second time you did it. And I'm definitely remembering those things. But the good news is like, because I've been through it, it really helps me deal with it. So I know what to expect. I kind of have a good understanding of what those cycles are. And I know, you know, how you get out of those tough times. And I think every startup has those. And if you don't, there's probably something wrong, actually. I'd love to ask you a bit about Super Mojo in a minute, but just I want to level set a little bit because I think what I've realized is just even thinking about this, recording this episode was that, you know, you read so much about Web3 and blockchain and crypto and, and NFTs, but it really is almost like binary. We have people that we were talking about this before also that people who know a ton about it, but then so if you're in the in the game, you're in Silicon Valley, you're in this space that you know a lot, but then there's a lot that really don't and a lot of really smart people. So I like to demystify some of these topics and make them more approachable. But do you mind just explaining just like you would maybe to a fifth grader to your kids about, you know, what an NFT is and how it fits with other terms people hear like, like crypto and blockchain and things like that? Sure. Happy to. Um, and it's, you know, it's early days and definitely we're like, even we're not even in the first inning really when it comes to NFTs, I'd say even crypto is very early days. So, you know, when you look at Bitcoin or Ethereum, Bitcoin at the end of the day is essentially just like the US dollar, right? One Bitcoin, it looks just like the next Bitcoin. And people will purchase Bitcoin because they want it for store of value, or they buy it because they just believe it's something they want to own. And there are different use cases which will use Bitcoin as a form of payment. But all Bitcoin looks the same. So it's fungible. NFTs are, you know, using the same technology blockchain. So Bitcoin is basically on the blockchain. And when you look at Bitcoin, you, you can see the transaction history. You can alter it. So that's one of the big powerful things about it is that you cannot alter it. And the fact that basically that ownership is very easy to prove. And you can essentially take that ownership and hold it yourself. So you don't have to put it in a bank. You can hold it in your own wallet. Non-fungible tokens, which is NFTs, 
are different in the sense that one NFT is different from the next NFT. They're all unique. And that uniqueness gives you a lot of different capabilities that we can talk about here in a second. The second thing is that NFTs use technology called smart contracts. And smart contracts basically allow you to essentially program these non-fungible tokens in different ways. So as an example, let's say you're, you, you produce music. You can essentially put your music and create NFTs that represent that music. Now, those NFTs essentially will hold the actual, can point to where that music is. So when I own that NFT, I actually own the music itself. But more importantly, because they're programmable, what I can do is make sure that when I sell this NFT to someone, let's say I'm the producer and I'm selling that NFT, that music, what I can do is make sure that essentially the contract for ownership of that music is also included in the NFT. In addition to that, the business model can also be included. So what does that mean? When I sell that NFT, I can basically say, you know, certain percentage of that sale goes to me. Um, certain percentage can go to other people. But then every time that NFT gets sold, I want to make 4% of those sales. You know, as a music owner or someone who's actually produced music, I can continually get benefits from the sale of that particular NFT. Now, what's different from today is like today, if you want to be able to sell your music, you need a host of folks from legal to agents basically managing and negotiating essentially those rights on your behalf. And what that means is that like, let's say out of a dollar, maybe 80 cents goes to the legal fees and the record labels that are essentially managing that. In this new world, that can be reduced significantly because now the legal and the rights management is all included within the NFT. And for the life of that NFT, you will continue always to get royalties as it gets traded. So just it's extremely powerful. Um, and this could be applied to many different verticals. You, you could imagine a multi-story commercial building in downtown Los Angeles can be split up into a thousand NFTs. And each NFT can have the deed and the o- complete ownership of that building in kind of sm- much more smaller chunks sold off. So a thousand people could own that building you know, they don't need to do any deed transfer. They just sell the NFT and that whole ownership goes with it and gets sold. Yeah, I love the examples you give because I think what people tend to think of is these, what essentially looks like a JPEG that they own, like a digital image, like a, a bored ape. You know, I was just perusing all these NFT marketplaces, but you're talking about a lot of things from ownership of physical assets, like a, an apartment complex or how you actually handle the licensing and distribution of music, but play that one through. Like we just love just from a practical perspective, like that apartment complex, I think is because it's a, a tangible asset. I mean, real estate has been the, you know, one of the oldest industries, but like, what does that look like? But also are there any actual current applications or are you really looking down the road in terms of here's what, what is possible versus actually here's what's happening right now? No, I mean, that's already happening right now. There are companies that today are uh, out there, doing this exact thing, multiple companies actually on the property side, really the value there is that, you know, today, you know, if you want to go have exposure to apartment buildings, you got to go buy a REIT, right? You got to go buy a real estate investment trust. 
and you can buy those on the uh, stock exchange. But if you are a big believer in, let's say, two buildings that are in middle of LA and you believe that's where you want to make your investments, today you can't do that because you either have to go buy the whole thing or you've got to go maybe find a REIT that has exposure to those two, but then you're picking up all these other investments that you may not be as interested in by buying that REIT. Whereas here with NFTs, you can be very targeted into what you want to own. And you can essentially go and say, like, I have ownership in this beautiful building downtown LA by actually having ownership over those NFTs. What's interesting also from the seller perspective is that they can really open up the aperture in terms of people who would have access to being able to purchase a commercial building. Today, commercial buildings are definitely targeted towards a certain sector of investors. There is not something that any investor can just go have access to. And so it really just changes the game in terms of who has access to what type of investments and more importantly, the complexity in which how property gets sold, right? So just imagine today, like you got to have, you know, you got to deal with title, you got to deal with all the different things you got to deal with selling a building, all that goes on blockchain. It becomes a ton easier for transfer of value between, uh, between buyer and seller. I love that example because it's like you have a physical asset, but then also leveraging the power of the blockchain and, and smart contracts. But play it all the way through in terms of like, what is that practically speaking? I'm an investor. I've got some percentage of this apartment complex. Like, how does the you know the cash flow work in terms of when it comes time to to sell you know my stake in the business? So I, I, can you just explain that a little bit more so you connect that back to like the real world in terms of how cash gets paid out? Yeah, I mean, basically, you know. The beauty of any of these, you know, blockchain is, especially when it comes to NFTs, is that people can essentially attribute value to existing holders of an NFT. So if you hold an NFT, let's say um, for a building, or even if let's say you're a big fan of a particular band and you own NFTs that they've produced, they can essentially send you more value, and that value can come through many different ways. They can send you all their holders, more NFTs, or they can send their holders crypto because they have ownership in this particular business but or this particular NFT. So by owning NFTs, basically it becomes a, an access point for the person who actually created the NFT in, a, in the first place to be able to give you more value. And so that's true for any, any segment. Like you could own a piece of music, you continue to get royalties because you were the first person who invested in this new band that you, you bought their first edition title. And now you will continually get royalties because you have ownership over that first edition. So imagine like if you own Michael Jackson's first like pieces of music, like how amazing that would be in terms of value for you as a fan, right? So it's a way for also the band to be able to reward its early adopters. And this is not just for music. This is also like for tickets to concerts. And it's the same way for property. Like if you have NFTs and you have ownership over a building, they can essentially through that make, you know, through that NFT basically pay you out for ongoing revenues uh, and profits that come as a result. It's interesting. I think people can wrap their heads around the, the apartment complex and music probably to a lesser extent, but it's, it's such a big mindset shift. It almost reminds me in some ways about 
gets a little sketchy territory, but people almost buying equity positions in athletes and their future earnings. You know, it's like almost allowing democratization of of access to pieces of businesses. But I just be curious to your perspective on that, but also just the go forward, just even how you even set up a business by creating it through the through the idea of NFTs. Yeah. I mean, look, it's interesting. First of all, you, you mentioned initially like art and that's where this all started, but a lot of this is now kind of bringing the physical closer to the, to the digital. And you mentioned athletes. Uh, a good example there is baseball cards. Today, if you own, let's say, Mickey Mantle baseball card physically, in order for you to trade it, you literally have to find a way to get this very, very expensive physical asset to somebody else and be able to easily sell it. But there's a world in which now where we're headed to is like, you know, essential vault can actually have those physical goods in it. And you have a representation of that physical good as an NFT. And once that particular NFT is created and the the industry term for it is minting, right? Mint All minting means is that you've created a new NFT that represents something. Once it's been essentially created, then that can be traded easily. No longer do you need to ask, actually physically send the Mickey Mantle baseball card because now it's in a central vault, which is a company. There are companies today that do that where they will, you can send your collectibles there and then they'll create NFTs for them. So just imagine how much more liquidity comes into the market because now it's a lot easier to trade that Mickey Mantle card. Now, what's even gets more exciting is that you can create multiple NFTs for smaller ownership of that Mickey Mantle because Mickey Mantle may be a multi-million dollar baseball card. But if you want to create a way for more ownership of it, and by the way, that actually will drive the value even higher is you can create multiple so that people have smaller ownership of that Mickey Mantle card. So as you can see, like it just becomes a whole lot more fluid. And because you're digitizing these goods, essentially you're able to trade and move value in a much easier way. But then more importantly, because these are all governed by smart contracts, you have the deed of that particular good all within it. And the original owner can continue getting getting benefits from it. So an example there would be, you know, Mickey Mantle family can continue getting a percentage of any trade in the future, which is incredible, right? If you think about it, like imagine if they get 4% every time this card got traded, like that's massive value to the family of Mickey Mantle, as an example. We've talked about a lot in terms of just applications. I'm sure people's minds are swirling. I noticed when I got done this rabbit hole. There's just so many exciting applications, but what should, what are actual companies doing to actually, to get into the NFT space? I know before we started recording, you talked about what brands are doing, but I'm just curious in terms of what kind of applications you're seeing both now, but also moving forward. Honestly, it's so vast. But what I can say is like every vertical, whether it's real estate, whether it's collectibles, music, each one, there are kind of general marketplaces that are being created that you can go to to essentially get exposure and own some of these things. But then brands are actually creating their own storefronts. Like Gucci is creating their own storefront where you can buy an NFT that gives you access to special Gucci products over time, right? So by owning that NFT, you essentially have privilege of 
access to certain, uh, certain um, for example, products that they bring exclusively for folks who own that particular NFT. So, you know, you have storefronts and then you have these kind of gen- general marketplaces that are more per vertical. But basically, everything you see on the internet will be in the future, there will be an aspect of NFTs underlying it. Because at the end of the day, it may not be called an NFT, but it will use that technology because it brings so much value to the brand and it really provides a whole new engagement model for them that they've never had before. It's interesting when you first started mentioning how brands were using it, I was just imagining digital renderings of products, you know, that people would actually buy and hold. But then, you know, you're talking about almost in a way, it's almost like subscription, like in terms of getting access to new products, maybe custom special release products, and actually owning physical goods or even fractional shares of physical goods. I mean, it's just mind boggling, just the number of applications, even if you just talk about a brand. Adidas was one of the first to come out with it. And uh, I'm a big Adidas fan, for example, and ownership of their NFT basically gives you very unique products that only NFT holders will get. And those, you know, maybe two or three times a year, there are new apparel, whether it's a hoodie or a hat that's get created. And really over time, what happens here is, and then also access to events. There are Adidas events that only NFT holders can go to as an example. What's interesting here is like over time, as this becomes more exclusive and there's more, more of a roadmap of things that start happening, more and more people want to have access to that NFT. So, you know, potentially the value goes up, but it really, at the end of the day, becomes a way for someone to be part of a community. And that's what, in that scenario, Adidas is creating, is they're, they're creating direct access to their brand lovers, right? So the big fans of their brand can own these NFTs, but more importantly, now Adidas has a direct access to them. He, they know where these people are geographically located. They, they know how to communicate with them. So it just becomes very, very powerful for brands to have a strategy in the space. And you can bet all of them are doing that now based on everything we're, we're seeing right now. What should other types of companies, obviously brands are usually on the bleeding edge in terms of just, you know, new concepts, new ideas, but like, what about other types of maybe more legacy businesses that aren't is consumer facing, so to speak? Well, I mean, a new one that I just came across, which is kind of fascinating is this restaurant group here in San Francisco, they're opening up a new restaurant that they're selling NFTs for. And essentially by owning the NFT, you have access it's a you know very kind of luxurious sushi restaurant that they're creating in downtown San Francisco, and it's in a really nice spot. But really, what they're they're selling is access to their restaurant, and they're giving you know folks who have they're selling like three levels of service with these NFTs. And let's say if you have the platinum, you have this kind of very kind of customized, personalized experience. You know, once a year, you even can get their chef to come to your house. As an example, you have this amazing trip to Japan with their team. So they can create these really, you know, special experiences for their biggest customers, essentially their biggest fans. Right. And so restaurants are probably as kind of traditional business that is now sees an opportunity here. 
to get into the NFT space because this is an opportunity for them to deliver a totally different experience that has never been done before, really. What are some of the barriers in terms of just the individual, you know, consumer, so to speak, getting into NFTs? I know it's it's you know from the outset a pretty arduous process in terms of obviously you, you got to get money in, you got to have digital wallets, it's just all these different things. Um, you got to store these assets. How does the just the average person like? What are some of those barriers to those types of folks? That's exactly what we're trying to solve here at uh, at Super Mojo. It is very difficult for the average person to even know what an NFT is. Really, we got to get to a point where nobody needs to know what an NFT is or even have to worry about owning wallets. That should just be completely transparent for the user in terms of like just the experience has to be super seamless. Today, you know, as a, as a user, if you want to go and buy an NFT, you essentially have to have a wallet and that wallet has secret keys because you truly have ownership over that particular NFT, what that means is that like, if you forget, if you forget that secret key, like you've completely lost that NFT forever. And that's true with crypto too, right? So most users are not going to want that. Now, a lot of users, uh, there's a segment of users that want that because they want to have control over their own assets and their own destiny. They don't want to necessarily for that to be by another party. But you know, our belief is that majority of users are going to want a seamless experience, very similar to what you see today in Web 2.0, which is I go to Amazon, you know, I have a username password. If I lose that username password, I can get it back and still not lose whatever value I have. Um, and that's really what we're doing to really simplify is that through Supermojo, you can essentially purchase an NFT with just your credit card. We will what we call custody that NFT for you, which all of that means is that we're holding on to it for you in a in a safe and you can do all the things that that NFT enables you to do while it's being custodied by us. And then whenever you want, you can still take that NFT and take it somewhere else. But by using our product, you don't need to know anything about purchasing crypto because you need crypto like Ethereum to be able to then purchase the NFT. With us, all you need is your credit card or debit card. And then we will create that wallet experience for you and make that purchase. Today, if a user, you know, any, any of your listeners want to go and buy an NFT, they can go to OpenSea, for example. That's one of the larger marketplaces. And they need an, a wallet like MetaMask. They need to download that wallet. And with all these steps, like definitely, if you're going to go try this, take baby steps, you know, go try to buy a cheaper NFT so that you can experience the whole the whole end to end, because I think there's a lot of folks that can easily make mistakes in the beginning uh, and lose funds because it is somewhat complex to understand how to own and purchase uh, NFTs. But again, that's that is all going to get solved, not just by Supermojo, but the industry has to solve these problems in order for it to have mass adoption. And we're still like, like I said, we're in like not even the first inning yet. Yeah, there's so much complexity. I mean, I can see absolutely just the value and, you know, the solution. It's like, what kind of crypto do I buy? Getting, yeah, getting the, you know, which wallet. It's a little terrifying, right? You know, linking your your bank and you're going through your Wells Fargo or your Chase account and linking to it. I mean, it's it's it can be definitely um, off-putting to the average person who doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes. Like I said, it's still complex and it's no differently than the early days of crypto. Like now 
users know, okay, if I really don't want the complexity, I'll go to Coinbase, open up an account there, and I'll buy through Coinbase. But before Coinbase, really that wasn't there. Like It was as complex as NFTs are today. So we're going to solve that with Supermojo. And I think that's you know, will be a ton easier in the future. But I do encourage everybody to go and learn more about NFTs just because I really do believe this is the direction of the future. And there's just so much, really reminds me of the early days of the web in my first startup when we were doing, uh, when the kind of, that was the internet bubble that was happening. But then after that bubble, like all these major companies in the internet world were created. But in the early days, it was like, oh, Amazon, which was just selling books, was the extent of how people could think of internet. We now know that like without the internet, basically nothing runs today. In a very similar way, NFTs, you know, initially came out as art and people kind of discounted them as just like kind of this new fad. But as people have started to understand the utility of NFTs, people are finally starting to really get where the power is going to be and why NFTs are going to really be useful in all these different industries in the future. Yeah, I think that one of the easiest ones for me at least to understand was just thinking about just all the skins that always my kids are buying in games like Fortnite and, and Roblox and all these things and just how much, you know, the value is is trapped there. And just like with the use of NFTs could be able to actually allow them to monetize it when they're and they're done with the game, you know, they're over it, they're moving on to the next thing. But to, I thought that was kind of a an interesting use case and example and just a way for people to really understand it. Darren, that's such a great example. And I do know a lot of gamers too. And I think, uh, especially for gamers, it's like once they, they spend a lot of time building value within the game. And like you said, a lot of times that value is trapped. And that's definitely an area where NFTs are, there's a lot of investments happening right now in the gaming space to solve that exact problem that you just mentioned. And it's also like really valuable for the gaming industry. And initially, it's a little bit scary for them because they've created these wall gardens that allow them to kind of trap the user within the game. But in reality, the good games are going to continue to grow even bigger once this problem is solved. And, you know, and what's nice about NFTs is that it's traceable. You know, you can't change them. Basically, the history is on blockchain. So it makes it really easy to know, you know, the authenticity and know whether you know you're buying something that actually has real value and that within the gaming space that's going to be a game changer for sure so yeah pretty exciting space to watch if you're running another kind of company or just even just working for a company what would you be thinking about in terms of just nfts and how to just even harness the promise but just the underlying technology i think the simplest thing initially could be just actually in order for you to even understand it is to essentially gift NFTs to your users. And these users don't need to be like consumers necessarily. This could also be enterprises. So there's ways that initially you could just say, you know, we're going to create NFTs and we're going to reward essentially almost think of it as as a badge, right? Like a, a badge that you get because you achieve something or you're a customer of a particular company. And I think that alone could be a way to get in to understand the initially what NFTs are. And what's cool is like your users and your your enterprises will start also uh, getting a better understanding of it. But then once you do that, you start understanding that by doing that, you've created essentially a community 
just naturally you've created a community of people that are holding your NFT, even though you're, you've given it for free. And then from there, I think you can build on it. To me, like that's the easiest, simplest first step. And then after that, there are so many different applications of how you can evolve and provide a totally different experience than your competitors because you can leverage the power of NFTs. I love that. You went way beyond just go and learn about it, but it's actually actually go and implement it. So, and to see and experience the value firsthand. There's a, you know, many different resources for that. And the good news right now is just like, there's so much investment happening in the NFT space. There's more investments in NFT space than the value of NFTs, if, if you can believe it. So it just tells you this sheer amount of how much money is being thrown in the space. And the reason for that is because of the value that various industries see in the future of NFTs. And you know some of the smartest students coming out of places like MIT and Harvard you know, are all coming into the space. So that, that's a leading indicator of where the interest of some of the smartest folks is because you know, at the end of the day, there's just so much complex things that need to be solved in the space. And typically those folks, you know, that's what they like doing. They like to go solve hard problems. Uh, so we're starting to see, you know, even a lot of engineers that are graduating from these top schools coming into the space because it's exciting. It's just, there's so much innovation happening in the space. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I'm sure on the, on the surface, like, oh, here's a mirror. He's an expert in, in NFTs and underlying technology, but you've had a you know company web 1.0 web 2.0 now web 3 like how have you gone about learning and growing and adapting and changing because i know you referenced before just even how maybe developers in in one type of technology you're you know surprised at just they're not being as up to speed on the the current technologies i'm just curious how you went about learning and growing well first of all i'll tell you in crypto and nft space every day i feel like i know nothing i'm not just saying that like and this is something I've heard from many others in the space because there's so much going on that you always feel like you're way behind because there's just there's just a lot going on. So just know that like if you're going into the space, there's just going to be a lot that you're going to be learning. You're going to be drinking from a fire hose, but you're not alone in the sense that you know every time you look, you're like, oh my god, there's more stuff to learn here. In terms of your question of like how the evolution, you know, I think part of it is just you know, knowing and starting to see where the puck is headed. And, you know, as we've seen the evolution in the space, you know, once you start getting a, a new generation is starting to kind of have interest in a particular technology or a different a particular type of products, you know, I, I found that's where like a lot of that evolution starts happening. Like, you know, when we were doing messaging in the early days, we would walk into these mobile carriers and talk about Facebook and the iPhone, and most of them didn't even understand what we were talking about. Like they didn't even know what Facebook was, right? But if you went and talked to someone who was in school, eight out of 10 people knew what Facebook was. Similar things happening here. I mean, obviously the segmentation is slightly different, but most young people, you know, know about NFTs. If not, actually a lot of them have invested it I'll use the word invested, invested like uh, loosely, but have gone and bought an NFT. And because whether they thought the value is going to go higher or because they just think it's cool and it's, it's a cool thing to own. And initially it's all about the cool factor, but then 
quickly, this has now become much more than that. It's really about the utility that it brings to these different areas. So for me, a lot of it has been learning from other people and and definitely coming in from, you know, kind of the non-crypto world. When I, you know, the last company I was at, it was Ripple. I knew very little about the space and it was pretty scary. You know, it was scary to come in and I, my role was like, I own product. So it, it was very, very daunting task of trying to come up to speed. But once you get, once you get into it, I think that my co-founder, Craig, I was working with him and he was one of the first people to really hold my hand and teach me about stuff. The first thing he did is like, Hey, go get a wallet. I'm going to send you some crypto. And then you're going to go buy some crypto. And it's like the smallest kind of use case was just going and purchasing it. And that alone taught me so much. So what I would encourage people to do is just even owning like a tenth of a Bitcoin or, you know, half of an Ethereum or one ETH or whatever, or owning a very kind of small priced NFT, that experience in itself will teach you so much and will also indicate whether you're passionate about the space and it's something that like gets you excited. But ownership over that first NFT or that first crypto actually has this kind of magical experience that you you go through. You're like, oh my God, like I own money that is not basically, I have full control over and I can send to anyone in the world that I want that has a crypto address. There's some power there. Whereas today I have to go through a bank. If I don't use crypto, I have to go through a bank or some other intermediary to be able to send money. And that could take couple of days, right? With fees. But with Bitcoin, I can do that in a much, much simpler way as an example. So those realizations are, I think, when I think a lot of people get excited and then want to learn more about the space. So where would you suggest in terms of where people can go to learn more about crypto and NFTs, but also about what you're doing at Supermojo? Well, Supermojo, it's easy. We're just supermojo.com. Um, you can learn more there. In terms of crypto in general, I mean, honestly, there's so many different ways to learn. And maybe what I'll do, Darren, maybe give you some of those and and maybe you could put it with your podcast so that folks can just click through and go to those resources. But in terms of just the simple ones are, you know, if you want an easy experience for purchasing, you can sign up to Coinbase or FTX. Both of those are easy places to go and, and buy crypto. And then on the NFT side, as I mentioned, OpenSea is one place you can go, but there are many different marketplaces on the on the NFT side that you can go to. For example, Dapper Labs has Top Shots, which is MBA. There is another marketplace called Candy. They have MLB for baseball as an example. There's just so many different places where you can go and purchase NFTs for different experiences, right? Like and there's very, very specific niche type NFT marketplaces, but then there are also ones that are much more broad that cover you know many different areas. Happy to give you some more uh, to post on your uh, podcast. Fantastic. Well, Amir, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for um, just shedding so much insight for the listeners and uh, appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you guys. Appreciate it.